wonder how many of you were impacted by Jim Steins' death this week. Incredible man. Like just gave so much of himself away just to see other people, I guess, benefit from the encouragement. He started a foundation called the Reach Foundation and it's estimated that over 500,000 young people were affected by that ministry and it was a, it was a self-esteem ministry. It was, a, you know, grabbing kids that were disadvantaged and, and troubled and just speaking, you know, positives into their life and demonstrating that somebody cared. And it was an amazing thing. And, you know, to hear people talking this week and all the accolades that they had for him and, you know, what a great man he was. But all the time my heart was going, but what's the point if he doesn't know Jesus? Like, what a waste of a life. And I, I mean, I don't know whether he was a Christian or not. I get the impression from the, the documentary that he wasn't. But I just thought, wow, we need to get the church rising up. You know, we've, uh, we need to have a voice out there because not only do we have positive truth, we have so much more to offer. And it's just, you know, it breaks my heart to think that on Tuesday there'll be a state funeral and there'll be all these wonderful things spoken about Jim resting in heaven and having a great time, but it's not the truth. If he doesn't know Jesus, it's just a lie. And I think it's time people heard the truth and we stopped giving false hope. And, you know, just for me, it was, a, it was a hard week because I kept thinking, the world thinks he's a good man. Well, what does Jesus think? That's all that matters at the end of the day. It was, it was really sad. Okay, into Ephesians. We're continuing on. We're up to chapter 3 this week and we're looking at, I guess Paul is trying to say to us there's there's more for us to embrace and understand and experience and his letter to the Ephesians is trying to get them to awaken their heart and awaken their mind in such a way that they walk in deep truth and that some of the things that they didn't quite have a grasp on through his letter he was hoping that the lights would sort of go on. So it's, a, it's quite an in-depth passage of scripture. There's a lot of, a lot of flowery words in it and a, I guess he's stretching language a lot because he's trying to fathom the depths of God's plan and God's purposes and you know, you're always going to come up short with the English language if you try and describe God's plan but he does the best that he can. And we see again in this chapter that there's those two themes running through this book all the way through. The plan of God, what was God's plan for Israel and for the Gentiles and for the whole human race and then we look at the power of God to get that plan executed. And those two themes are just interwoven right throughout every chapter. And as we move into chapter 3, we see more of Paul trying to articulate what God's plan was. And in some senses, it was a mysterious plan. Nobody knew that God was going to do things the way that he did. In the generations of the Old Testament, nobody understood that God was going to bring the Gentiles into his plan. That was just unheard of. Um, you know, no one had come up with that logic because God's plan was, in a sense, a mystery, a secret. And Paul goes into that. And he writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the secret made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the secret of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations 
as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This secret is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus and through him in faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful passage of scripture. When I was lecturing at a, at a it's, it's sort of a Bible college, but it's more a, a school for church planters, for people that have a heart to go and plant a church, and it's called the Pines Training Centre. It's, um, they do like a certificate for, and then they do a diploma course in church planning. And what they do is they sort of cover a little bit of everything that you might do in a church and push you out the door and say, the Lord will give you the rest. It's quite an interesting thing. Um, But one year we were starting the course and we got an email from a man in Myanmar saying that he was coming to do the course. Totally out of the blue, no one knew who he was, how on earth he got the name of the Pines, but he just turned up one day and rang um, the guy who ran this training centre and said in his very broken, difficult English, I'm here, come pick me up. Didn't know where he was going to stay, how he was going to pay the fees, anything like that, but they went and picked up this man. His name was Vabi. He's about this high. Didn't speak much English. It was very difficult to understand. But as we got to know Vabi... He had planted something like a hundred churches in Myanmar, in Burma, in a, in a country that is just so difficult to do anything that is Christian. And he was the least likely. Like to look at him, you would just go, no, he doesn't have the potential to do that or the capacity. And that's what God does, isn't it? He grabs the least likely person and uses them for his glory. And that's what he did with Paul. I mean, Paul persecuted the church. He hated the church and he was 
a Jewish Jew to the nth degree. He was the Pharisee to the Pharisees. He was a zealot Jew. He wasn't going to let anybody get embraced into anything to do with his faith. And yet God put his finger on that man and said, you're the one that I'm going to entrust this gospel to. You're going to be the one that I'm going to send to all the Gentile nations and you're going to tell them the truth. You're going to have that privilege. And as we look through scripture, we see that all the time. God takes us, you know, who have nothing, who really don't have anything to offer. And yet he says, in you, I have a plan and a purpose and and something wonderful that I want you to do. And so Paul's the one. He got the gig. And yet he writes and says, I'm the least of the least. And yet at one point in time, he would have said, no, I'm the greatest Pharisee there is. I kept the Ten Commandments. I'm righteous. I'm... You know, I'm a zealot for God and yet God knew that if that passion could be turned through Christ to the church, something incredible would happen. And so Paul got this responsibility to go to all the Gentile nations and spread the good news. And we know from, from Acts um, and, and all the epistles that Paul was an amazing man. Like just that, that radical heart change that he had empowered him to spread that gospel. And what he had to do was convince even the other apostles, that this was God's plan. No longer did people have to become Jews and get circumcised and follow all their laws and regulations. They could now come to Jesus Christ in their own way. And so Paul was an advocate for that and uh, he was very passionate about that. And at times in Acts 15, we see that he had to stand up in the council of Jerusalem and fight for that truth to be understood. And finally it was that this blessing that people like you and I, who weren't God's chosen people, we weren't Israelites, we weren't part of that, in, that, that heritage, became part of it because God chose to graft us in. And the blessing that Israel had and that nation had for generations became ours to embrace. And right across the world today, like you heard them praying, there are people in every language, tribe and tongue celebrating the gospel today all across this world. And it's an amazing thing to be a part of. So for ages past, right through the Old Testament, nobody knew that was going to happen. It was a mystery. It was a secret. And yet now it's been revealed to us. And still today, if you go to Israel, there are people living in the Old Testament. They are still waiting for their Messiah to come. They are still waiting for for whoever that might be to appear on the political scene or the religious scene and proclaim that he is the Messiah and they've missed the truth. Romans says that God has put a stupor, a spirit of stupor across the nation of Israel so they can't see it. But one day when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, that blindfold is going to come off and there's going to be a great awakening in the nation of Israel. There's going to be great repentance because they're going to realise we missed it. And they're going to become great evangelists for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse 1 to 10 of this passage, Paul's just trying to get us to realise there was a mystery. There was a secret, but it's not secret anymore. Everyone can understand it and be a part of it. Then he moves on to verse 10 through to 13. This is a really important passage of scripture because Paul is saying God's intent in this age was now that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, God is able to say 
Satan, rulers, principalities, authorities, demons. Look at my church. There's my wisdom. There's my manifold wisdom that all the different people from all the different nations and all the different backgrounds, no matter what colour they are, no matter what social status they have, are one. And they love each other. And they serve me. My mum has this little, little book in her, um, in her purse that she carries around. She calls it Grandma's Brag Book. You don't want Grandma to get her brag book out. You really don't because, you know, it just folds down. Oh, this was my son, Mark, when he went to school. And she just has this brag book. But we are God's brag book. That's the whole point. That when he looks at the church, he's able to say to Satan, you thought you had a plan that would win, but look at my victory. Look at what these people have become. Look at what grace and mercy and the spirit of the living God can do in these people to bring them grafted into Christ and to be one body and to operate against the spirit of the world and to demonstrate true love and to be one and yet incredibly different at the same time. We're God's brag book. Who would have thought that God would have chosen us to demonstrate to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms that God is so wise? What a wonderful thing that God can declare that truth over his church. It doesn't matter what background we have. We're part of this beautiful thing called the church. You know, it saddens me when I hear people criticise the church or they don't go to church anymore because they've been wounded or things have been done. I know that's true. I know the churches don't always get things right and leaders make mistakes or they make decisions where people get hurt. And I'm sorry if you've ever been hurt in the church that things have been done or said to, to wound you. But that doesn't change the fact that the church is God's chosen vessel for us to gather and to be a part of and to be committed to. It's the vehicle that he's chosen. There's no such thing as Christianity without church. You cannot stay at home on a Sunday and not have fellowship with other believers and say you're really living out a Christian life because it's supposed to be lived out in community. That's the dynamic of a Christian faith and and that's where God's wisdom gets proved that we can get over offences and we can get over times when we don't get our own way and we can get over having differences amongst each other and we can work through those issues and still live in harmony, harmony and unity. That's when we prove God's truth is truth, when we can live that way as a church. And the sad thing is in churches these days is that when people get disgruntled or offended, they just leave. That's not victory. That's not victory, that's losing. Because God calls us to be part of a body of people and he says, be committed, go the long haul, work through the differences. There may be times theologically where you come to a crossroads and it's right to move on because they're not preaching God's word anymore or something's happened. But really we've got to knuckle down. We've got to stick it out. We've got to love what Jesus loves. Now if one of you ever criticises my wife, look out, I'm going to come for you because I love her. And we need to have that attitude towards the church. That when people criticise the church, we should set them straight. You know, we shouldn't allow them to tear down what Jesus loves so much, what he gave his life for. We need to have a passion for this church to protect it and to guard it, whether it's this church or any other congregation, because Jesus said, that's it. 
That's where my wisdom will be manifested. That's where it will be displayed. That's where you'll see, you know, all these mixed up people from all these different broken backgrounds become a beautiful mosaic. And I'll be able to point to them and say, look at them. Look what they were. Look what they are now. Look what they become. Look how they love one another. Look how they serve one another. Look at the way they glorify me. Look at the messy week they've had. And yet, they lay all that aside and they worship and honour me. We're God's brag book. It's really exciting to know that we are a part of that. And then Paul moves on to this beautiful prayer. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. And he goes on and on and on. There's five things here that Paul prays. He prays that we would be strengthened in our inner being. You know, so often in our culture, in the, our days, we focus on the outer, don't we? Oh, I really pray for Ross that, you know, God will give you more money and you'll get a better job and whatever. And, and our focus immediately goes to the exterior, to the outside. But what Paul's saying is, no, it's the inner man that needs to be strengthened. It's the joy in our heart. It's the forgiveness in our heart. It's the, it's the character and the integrity within us that he wants to see strong in the Ephesian church. You know, and he's, and he's praying. I mean, Paul couldn't preach anymore. Remember when he was writing this, he was chained to a guard. So he couldn't walk the streets and proclaim the gospel anymore, but what he could do was still pray. He could get on his knees in front of a centurion and pray for the Ephesian church. And the first thing that he prayed for, you would have thought, would be, God, get me out of these chains. Get me out of this prison. Change my external circumstances. But he didn't. He prayed for their inner being that God would strengthen them, that Christ may dwell in their hearts. He wanted them to be people of integrity, people of holiness and purity with their inner man strong. And what he's really saying is, I want them to be overtaken by Christ, sort of possessed by Jesus, overwhelmingly in love with him, sold out. We've been doing that not a fan but a follower series. Same mentality. Just totally abandoned to God in all that we do. That was his prayer for the Ephesian church. That all the other stuff didn't matter but the core of their heart was sold out for him. And it's sort of the language of saying that, you know, when a good friend comes to your house, they sort of just waltz in and sit down on your couch. There's no, you know, there's no stuffiness or anything. They just make themselves at home. They go to your fridge, you don't have, they don't have to ask, they make themselves a cup of coffee. That's sort of what Paul's trying to say, that Jesus should be at home in our hearts. He should find freedom and liberty in our hearts to rule and reign there. He goes on to say, and that you may be rooted and established in love. You know, when you put your roots down and you're established in something, you're steadfast and you're firm. You don't get tossed by the waves, you're, you're steady. You're sure about what you believe in. You're sure about your purpose in life. You're committed. You're steadfast. And Paul knew that the Ephesian church, given the environment that they were in and the opposition and the persecution that they were going to face, that they would have to stand strong in the spirit. And he goes on in the other chapters to teach them how to fight in spiritual warfare. And then he moves on and he says, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
He's really talking about us having a big heart, an enlarged heart, in the sense that, that everything about us is growing in God, that we are getting more and more Christ-like in all that we do, so that we grasp how wide and deep and long is the love of God. And then finally he moves on to say that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now that's the end result, is that we should be vessels that are filled with the power and the presence of God. And we sang that song before, Lord, saturate me in your anointing. Saturate me in your presence. There should be something about us when we move about in our workplace and in our schools where God's presence is all over us. And the manifest presence of God in us changes all that we can do and should do and will do. You get the idea that Paul's sort of... You ever tried to stuff a sleeping bag back into one of those covers? It's an, almost an impossibility. In our family, I get the job. I just get the five things because the girls don't have the strength to push it in. But that's really what Paul is saying. He's trying... God wants to stuff us so full of himself that we're just running over. We're vessels that are full, full, full. And then he finishes with this beautiful passage. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That verse is too beautiful to even try and touch. It's, you can't add anything to that. But there's something in that that Paul's giving us, I guess, a bit of a warning, but he's also giving us a bit of a solution. You often hear people say, why don't we see God doing more? Why don't we see more miracles? Why don't we see you know, more of the wonder-working power of God? Paul says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, God can do it. That's not up for question. The next part is, than all we ask or imagine. That's the key to unlock. Have we been asking? The problem is that, firstly, we don't ask. We don't ask God to move. We don't ask him to stretch out his hand across our nation and bring, you know, revival. We've just seen one of the nation's greatest political parties get wiped off the landscape in Queensland. But God can do things, but he needs the church to rise up and to pray and to ask. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. It's that simple. We've got to start asking. But it's not just asking for something that's beyond our imagination or our faith. That's pointless. Paul's saying more than we could ask or imagine. He's saying there's connection between faith and imagination. We've got to ask, believing that God can do it, trusting that he can do it, trusting that he has the power and the capacity to do it. And that's the challenge for us, for God to increase our faith so that we ask for bigger things, for God to fill the place of our church, to fill churches right across the southeastern corridor, to bring new people into parliament who stand for God. Like, start asking. God's probably saying, well, you, you ask, I'll act. You ask, my spirit will move. You trust me, I'll, I'll respond. But when are we asking? So part of what Paul's saying is, get off your backside, church, and pray. 
pressing to God, ask him to move. Imagine. How much can you imagine? As much as you can imagine, God can do more. And so Paul's really encouraging the guys, trying to stretch their minds to say, press into God, ask, believe, trust, let that grow. Let that grow so we ask for more and more and more and more. And we expect God to move because he is able. It doesn't say he could. It says he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So if we asked for a congregation of 50, God might do a bit more and give us 60. If we ask God for a congregation of 5,000, he might do more and give us 10. That's the principle. It's asking God to move because he wants to involve us in his plans and purposes. He's entrusted us with that responsibility to see a wonder-working God move. We need to trust that God can do these things. I believe he's waiting for us to rise up, to really press in and see his power move. Let's pray. Father, I'm thinking this morning about what we need to ask you for today. Lord, when was the last time we came and beseeched you and pleaded with you for the salvation of our families that don't know you? When was the last time that we, we came together as a church and prayed for our nation and prayed for our, our state and took a stand against gay marriage and all the things that are eroding away, things that honour and please you? Lord, when was the last time we came with our marriages that are struggling and laid them at the altar and said, God, you can do immeasurably more than I can ask for or imagine. But Lord, I'm pleading with you to touch my husband and touch my heart and bring our marriage back together. And Lord, I'm praying for my children who have run away from the faith. Lord, that you would do something miraculous in their life. And the list just goes on. But Lord, we need to have the boldness and the courage to come and ask ask for you to move your mighty right hand. Lord, for us to lift our vision higher, to see a God for whom nothing is impossible, who can do immeasurably more. And Lord, it's going to come out of our mouths and out of our lips, the proclamation of what our God can do. And so, Father, help us to, to believe in what we speak out, to trust you that you are a God who, who can do immeasurably more, you're not talking dribbles here, God. You're talking releasing an open heaven over the circumstances of our lives and changing them, impacting them in such a way that this nation will see revival. But why do we pray if we don't believe? So God, would you challenge us? Lord, I believe we need to apologise for not having eyes of faith for not having those enlarged hearts that see how wide and how deep and how long your love and your power really is. So Lord, I believe today you need to fill us afresh with your power. The Lord, we're sometimes like the disciples in the upper room who are fearful, shut away. And God, you didn't take away their problems, you just brought your power. You changed them in the inner man. You strengthened them, you established them. 
You gave them enlarged vision. You poured courage and boldness into their hearts by your presence. The troubles didn't go away. You just gave them victory. You took away their fear. You took away their laziness. You took away their apathy. So, Father, my prayer is that individually you would stir us up. Lord, where we are not sold out for you, the only thing that's going to change that is a heart that's willing to fight to come back to their first love. The only thing that's going to change marriages, the only thing that's going to change broken families, the only thing that's going to change sickness, the only thing that's going to move the hand of God is if we ask. So, Father, give us the faith to ask, the faith to believe. And, Lord, you've promised that you will do immeasurably more. So I don't know what your hardship is today. I don't know what your giant is in your life right now. Are you willing to ask God to tear it down? Are you willing to ask him to bring change and transformation? Because he's able. He's more than able to do immeasurably more. Father, as a church, that should be our proclamation. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or dream or imagine. To him be the glory in the church. Father, I so long for this place to be a place of miracles a place of your power. Father, where we can be a demonstration that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is still at work today in us. And Lord, we're just vessels of that. We're broken jars of clay in which there is an incredible treasure. And Lord, I believe your word is truth, that you want to fill us. You want to fill us with your presence. You want to saturate us with your anointing. You want, to, you want to just wash away everything that holds us back. But the choice is ours. Today I pray, Father, that we make a stand for our families. We make a stand for our marriages. We make a stand, Lord, for our nation, for our state, that, Father God, we'd lift our vision. Lift our vision higher. Begin to see you assign angels and a heavenly host to begin to work. That God, we'd see breakthroughs. We'd see restoration. We'd see miracles of healing. We'd see the power of God so that, Lord, you would be able to do what you said you would to say to the principalities and the power, see, see my church in action. See the love that flows. See the forgiveness. See the power. See the joy. See the strength. See the wonder-working power of God. See my blood flow and heal and release. See my anointing break the yokes in people's lives. Lord, that's your church. That's what you long to see. And Father, we want to be those people today. We want to respond and say, as for me and my house, yes, Lord. Yes and amen. Yes, I want to see God move and I'm going to ask. Yes, Lord, I believe, Lord, and where I've where I failed to believe you, forgive me. But Father, give me eyes of faith. Increase my faith. Help me to see 
your potential, God, not my inadequacies. So, Father, today, would you move by your power, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're just going to sing, and it's just up to you to respond, whatever way you like. If there's something that's really been a burden or a, or a, a giant in your life, well, come and ask God to move it. You know, if there's something that seems impossible in your mind, ask God. He's faithful. He'll do it.